This is The Guardian. The conflict in Sudan is worsening with massive implications for that country and the region that surrounds it. Fighting over the past week between rival military groups has escalated sharply, prompting a rush to help people caught in the crossfire. Westminster being Westminster, the most discussed aspect of the Sudan crisis is about UK nationals and how to get them out. Because British politics is inevitably parochial, there's also a lot of talk this week about looming local elections, the battle between Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer, and yet another chapter in the seemingly endless story of Labour and anti-Semitism. It's a mark of how far the Labour Party has changed, that we acted so swiftly and that we take it so seriously. But I condemn what she said. We'll be discussing it all. I'm John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Weekly UK for The Guardian. Joining me today are The Guardian's political editor, Pippa Kreera, and The Guardian columnist, Gabby Hinsliff. Hello to you both. Hello. Hi. Today we'll be talking about Sudan. Why has the Foreign Office come in for criticism yet again about its response to a conflict? And the Labour Party, a fresh complaint of anti-Semitism and a key electoral test coming up next week. This week, the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office has come in for a lot of criticism about the dire and dangerous situation in Sudan and how it has left potentially thousands of British nationals stranded. There are reports of people hiding in basements, running out of food and water and medicines, and hearing virtually nothing from the Foreign Office. All that has conjured up memories of the chaotic evacuation of people in Kabul in the summer of 2022. I'm going to talk, first of all, to Jason Burke, who's the Guardian's Africa correspondent. Um, Jason, can you briefly explain, if that's possible, the current situation in Sudan? I mean, effectively, you've got two factions, forces, if you will, um, led by generals who rose to prominence in the regime that was overthrown four years ago. That's that's the that's the very basics. Take us from there into what's happened and why it's happened now. Well, if I may, I'll take you back a little bit further than there, because 2019, which is when the long-term leader, authoritarian dictator Omar al-Bashir actually fell is really the midpoint in this rivalry between the two generals who are fighting for control of Sudan today. I say two generals. One is actually a general, Abdul Fattah al-Bahan. He's the man in charge of the armed forces, the regular armed forces. And then there's his rival, who's known as Hermeti. It's a nickname. And he is in charge of a paramilitary force that has really been built up over the last 20 years and started to be built up under the former regime. And that rivalry existed then. It existed under the former regime. In fact, it was meant to exist under the former regime because the dictator al-Bashir was uh, dividing and ruling among his subordinates, if you like. But once he'd gone, that confrontation, that rivalry was always going to come to a head Where we are now is these two men and the forces who are loyal to them fighting it out for the control of the state and its resources. And they're doing it in a way that is pretty indiscriminate, basically. Is it a rivalry which is solely about power or are are there different visions of Sudan, Sudanese society, Sudan's place in the world being contested here? There are a few ideological differences. They're certainly quite big kind of ethnic, cultural, regional differences, and that is very much playing out. I mean, you could see this as a revolt of marginalised provinces against the Khartoum elite, certainly. 
you could see it against as a kind of old regime establishment being challenged by insurgents, both metaphorically and literally, if you like, in political terms. I mean, there are all kinds of dynamics here. But at the end of the day, it's really just two men and the people loyal to them fighting for power and through power resources. Sudan has agricultural resources, gold, oil too, I should mention. But whoever gets you know control of all of those it is very rich and can stay in power by funneling that wealth down to their followers. And that's really what this is about. That's partly why they're fighting in Khartoum, because you want to hold Khartoum, you want to capture the capital if you want to run the country. Okay. Well, talking of Khartoum, among other places, tell me about your sense of what the situation is like on the ground. Well, there's been a kind of marginal improvement in the recent 24, 36 hours because there's a truce that is kind of holding and they're still fighting, but it's at a lower level than previously. As with any of these conflicts, you know, on the ground, you have it really varies street to street. You can have a street that is absolute mayhem, huge amounts of fighting, real violence, all the rest of it. And then, you know, a few streets where it's pretty quiet. The airstrikes, which uh, are scaring a lot of people, obviously, because they appear to be random. Uh, they're not, probably. But there's it, there's a bit less fighting. But that means, of course, that people now can see the real humanitarian problem, the real crisis there. And that is absolutely really very serious indeed. You've got most hospitals are either either getting close to being out of action or actually out of action exhausted staff drugs running out very little fuel people have been uh, without internet between uh, for a few days now which in a situation like this is really very difficult indeed food is expensive and getting scarce fuel likewise there are sick people who can't get treated there are dead people who haven't been buried i mean it it really is pretty apocalyptic Forgive me, I'm going to ask you about this in a, in a British context briefly. You said a moment ago that the roots of this conflict go back several years. There is, a, there is a sense in the coverage of the British government's response to this that their response came too late and they appeared to have been caught on the hop. Should the British government have predicted this? Well, there have been you know, red lights flashing for, for, for weeks and months now. So I think in the short term, there was a degree of complacency. I mean, it's, it's quite complicated, various events over the last few months, deals that were made between those who are now fighting and with the international community kind of shepherding them to some kind of agreement. But there has been engagement and that there has been interest. The, the, there was The problem was possibly an exaggeration of... The West's ability to really influence things. You have regional actors and other geopolitical actors who are following different agendas. And then you have two men on the ground and their followers who really are set on a zero sum confrontation. And in that context, you, you, I think a little more pessimism a little earlier would have been helpful. Do you think it, it seems sort of um, parochial and very small to be sitting here? Um, as the media is talking about the priority of getting British people out and the British government's response in terms of airlifts and all that, does that pale into insignificance, really, beside the, the, the crisis itself in Sudan? Well, looking at it with my kind of Africa correspondent hat on, having lived on the continent for the best part of seven years, the answer's got to be yes. I mean, it does look pretty parochial. Um, on the other hand, you know, every nation has scrambled to look after its own citizens because that's what governments are elected to do. So you can't necessarily blame them. I think one thing you can hope for is that once that 
conversation has happened, that those evacuations have happened and that, you know, discussion has happened, then very quickly people are going to start talking about what they can do in terms of humanitarian assistance for the Sudanese who are left behind because the optics are not brilliant. You know, we've got the West and all the other countries of the world too, you know, China, Saudi, India, whoever, pulling out all their people and then kind of as an afterthought thinking, oh, well, we better do something about the poor Sudanese who are left. Last question. Um, I keep reading speculation, um, in quite informed speculation on the face of it, about how long this conflict is going to last. And most of it seems to suggest that this conflict is going to go on for a very, very long time, potentially. Is that your sense of it? It's very difficult to see how it could come to any definitive end soon. Where we are at the moment is just trying to get a lid on really appalling violence and the prospect of Sudan collapsing really rapidly into a totally failed state. Once you get there, it's kind of difficult to see how you can get back to anything more stable very fast. So I think, you know, we are really looking at a very, very bad situation. And it's not just Sudan. It's going to be the region too. Sudan is a big country physically, 45 million people. It, it's really key in its own region and across the whole of the Sahel in one sense. It's, it anchors w- one end of a whole chain of highly unstable states. Which ones? Which ones? Well, if you're, it, well, you're all the way from the Atlantic seaboard through to, you know, kind of Eritrea, Somalia, Ethiopia. I mean, you go horizontally across from where Sudan is in either direction, but particularly looking west at the moment through Chad, Niger, Mali, out that way, you're looking at a whole series of states that are in desperate trouble, hugely unstable, battling big insurgencies, massive climate problems, a whole range of really, really deep and acute issues. And so if, if, if Sudan as a kind of anchor to that becomes deeply unstable, uh, the whole lot, can go and that's that's a really scary prospect so you know what's what goes on in sudan does not stay in sudan great thank you so much for speaking to us jason it's really really appreciated thank you thanks pippa and gabby are still with me um let's talk first of all about the foreign office and the sense that there may be comparisons to be drawn with the evacuation of Afghanistan not that long ago. Do you think there is something to those parallels, potentially, Pepper? I think the biggest parallel is that the Foreign Office is deeply anxious about there being a potential repeat. And as a result, we've been told that they've learned the lessons of of that evacuation, which the military side, military side if you remember, went very smoothly, but the, the consular side, if you like, went really badly. And it was still in a place where lots of Afghan nationals who helped the Brits and were promised help and promised to get out um, aren't able to. Uh, but I'd say, that's, I'd say there are also lots of differences because whereas Kabul had a safe, uh, a safe air base and thousands of British troops ready to help with evacuation, that isn't the case in Sudan. Um, and also the numbers are very different. One among many indications of those differences was reflected in what the African minister Andrew Mitchell had to say to those stranded on Monday when he spoke to the Radio for Today programme's Michelle Hussein. 
our advice is very clear. The only uh, position that the British government can urge people to take is to stay indoors because it is too dangerous to go outside. However, I think uh, they'll realise that who, already. Who, however, uh, many of the Brits are very uh, inventive and creative and know the situation on the ground. If at their own risk they determine that there is a way for them to leave their homes, then of course uh, they will take it. But they do so at their own risk. And I should point out that yesterday when the Turks uh, tried to assemble a convoy and had three muster points. Two of those muster points were shot up during the points when they were trying to evacuate their citizens. Not quite the voice of reassurance there, Gabby, really. The, 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 the bit about being inventive and creative sounded it was sort of worrying and ambiguous, didn't it? Well, that would have been a signal, I think, to, to Brits who are in Sudan and to expats that um, there probably wasn't going to be a British evacuation and that they would need to find their own way out if they wanted to get out. But since then, we've had um, the announcement of a you know planned evacuation program. Uh, airlift starting to come out um, and it looks as if, you know, they're talking about six flights a day, possibly um, evacuation by sea as well. So there is going to be some kind of evacuation attempt, but it's you know, it has been slower than some other EU nations. There is a certain embarrassment to the idea that, you know, we can't rescue our own people. But I think what made the Afghan thing so, you know, so terrible, really, was the profound sense of betrayal of the people we left behind, the fact that it was an ignominious end to a war in, in which we had been participants. It was part of a much bigger failure of foreign policy, whereas this is more about, you know, can we scramble a rescue attempt from scratch as well as we might have been able to do 10 years ago. And that's about defence capacity as well as foreign office capacity, I would say. I suppose the key story about the British side of evacuating people from Sudan um, has been that Britain was visibly slower to do that than other countries, European countries. Uh, And in addition, um, it was pretty plain that we evacuated um, diplomats and their families first ahead of other people. There have been the two things that have really burned through. Um, what do you think, in terms of the politics of all that and what that makes the government look like, I'm curious to uh, what your sense of those things is, Gabby. I mean, it's not normal. Normally, you would expect the embassy team to stay to the last minute, ensure the safe evacuation of British nationals and then be the last ones out. Um, there's some suggestion that there was a specific um, security threat against uh, embassy staff, and that's why they kind of swapped the natural order around. Um, and Labour has not been critical of that, which makes you think there is um, something going on in the background that we may not be entirely aware of. But it does it does look bad. And for other countries who have done it the other way around, you know, it, it's very clearly easier to organise an evacuation with your embassy staff in place. I mean, there were stories of people, you know, unable to get out because their passports were with the British embassy for renewal. And the embassy staff had gone. Do you think, um, Pepper, within government, there is a sort of nervousness about what that has looked like? Yeah, almost certainly. But I think it is the case that I think diplomatic missions across the board, not necessarily just Britain's, um, were potential targets. And uh, whereas other countries have, have, didn't have as many uh, either citizens or dual nationals in. I mean, countries like France or Germany were talking about hundreds of people rather than thousands of people. And that meant that they could evacuate their diplomats and their citizens at the same time. The issue with us is that we had our diplomats, so they prioritised them for the reasons that we've alluded to. Um, But they have um, up to 4,000 British citizens and dual nationals in Sudan, half of which have said that they want to to leave. So there's a a different scale in terms of organising an evacuation, the logistics of it. And that seems to be the government's defence at the moment. I guess time will tell when we hear from people on the ground and we're still learning what's going on there. Um, as to whether as to whether that actually is a valid excuse or not. 
Pippa, you interviewed the Foreign Secretary, James Cleverly, last week, didn't you? I did. I mean, I was out, out in Japan for the G7. Did you get a sense of how he and the government were approaching the situation in Sudan? So, well, the immediate thing that struck me was how seriously they were taking it, given, of course, that the Horn of Africa has, is no stranger to conflict. They interrupted meetings uh, that had been pre-planned with other foreign ministers. And he and Anthony Blinken, the US Secretary of State, sort of scrambled a statement together and appeared alongside one, each, one another uh, to give a media statement after putting in calls to various African nations. And then, of course, James Cleverly carried on his his Pacific tour until it reached a point where I think he realised that evacuations were going to have to happen and he had to rush home. And that was a very clear contrast, of course, to Dominic Raab, who was the foreign secretary during the Afghan withdrawal, who infamously was on his holidays and refused to come back immediately. And the permanent secretary at the time was also out of the country on his holidays. <laughs> and infamously no longer in the cabinet. Let's just well, note that while we're here. We haven't is, mentioned that in the podcast so far. That's that's absolutely right. So, But the contrast in, in the top by sort of, you know, how, how how seriously they were taking it um, was very it was very obvious to me, um, and it kind of sort of started to dominate. It, it dominated the discussions, which up until that point had been primarily about China and Ukraine. Now, there is a, a very uncomfortable political tension, at least potentially, in this story. Among other things, the situation in Sudan is going to mean a refugee crisis almost inevitably. And we all know where the government stands on questions about refugees. That is going to be a thing very soon, isn't it? The timing of that uh, of this crisis and its ramifications in that sense um, might be quite difficult for the government. But nonetheless, there is a tension and an awkwardness there, isn't there, Gabby? Yeah, and it came up at Prime Minister's questions. The Prime Minister was asked, you know, what would be the route out for a Sudanese child who wanted to escape? You know, if they if they managed somehow to get out and get to the UK, would they be basically deported to Rwanda by this government? You know, would we, is there any safe route by which you could be a refugee from that kind of crisis? And the um, Prime Minister kind of ducked and dived around it in a sort of embarrassed way because the answer is obviously no, at the moment there isn't a safe and legal route it really highlighted what quite a lot of people have been saying about the small boats policy, which is, you know, if you shut down every possible allowable route by which people get here, can get here, and then stop them taking the only other emergency route that's available to them, what are you consigning them to? And that, you know, that is politically very awkward for it, the, for the government. The other thing is that this is, you know, this is Rishi Sunak's first big unexpected foreign policy crisis. Every prime minister has them, a thing that kind of comes at you that you weren't expecting. And I think there'll be a lot of people watching to see how Sunak manages that still as a very inexperienced Prime Minister. Particularly when it comes to refugees. Anyway, let's pause here for a moment. When we come back, we're going to look at the Labour Party ahead of the local elections next week. Has Keir Starmer really cleaned his party up? The local elections next week are being seen as a big, big test of how Keir Starmer's leadership of the Labour Party is going. On Sunday, um, it could be said that he was given yet another opportunity to clamp down on the party's left, one of his big sort of brand values, when the former Shadow Home Secretary, the veteran Labour MP and close Jeremy Corbyn ally Diane Abbott, had a letter published in The Observer. In that letter, she tried to draw attention to what she characterised as prejudice that she said was similar to racism, that's a quote, but wasn't racism. 
Um, I'm going to read you out a, a section, the key section of the letter. She said, it is true that many types of white people with points of difference, such as redheads, can experience this prejudice, but they are not all their lives subject to racism. In pre-civil rights America, Irish people, Jewish people and travellers were not required to sit at the back of the bus. In apartheid South Africa, these groups were allowed to vote and at the height of slavery, there were no white-seeming people manacled on the slave ships. Um, quite remarkable in all, all sorts of senses. I mean, anyone reading that letter out to, to somebody close to them would expect someone at least to say, well, what about the Holocaust? Anyway... Diane Abbott then apologised for her comments. I think, among other things, she said that by mistake, someone had sent in what she said was a first draft of that letter, but she's had the Labour whip removed. And here is what the Labour leader, Keir Starmer, had to say about everything. What she wrote yesterday, I utterly condemn. And um, I said uh, we would tear out anti-Semitism by its roots. I meant it. And that's why we acted so swiftly yesterday. Um, I think it's a mark of how far the Labour Party has changed that we acted so swiftly and that we take it so seriously. But I condemn what she said. What was your each of your reactions to that letter? I was sitting in a, a cafe by a lake in Somerset and um, the, my social media just suddenly sort of exploded. And part of me was sort of shocked, I suppose. But also, I guess I wasn't that surprised in the sense that this is yet another story about lots and lots of stories about the Labour Party and this part of the Labour Party in particular and anti-Semitism. Pippa, what did you think? I had a very similar reaction in that I was my mind was cast back to three years ago, four years ago, when these sorts of stories um, were coming out all the time about people on the Labour left, um, who, of course, at that point were running um, the Labour Party. So um, not not entirely surprised, but uh, it did feel quite like a different era under the Labour Party. And then when Keir Starmer's um, the Labour whips acted very swiftly and then Keir Starmer's response the following day. I mean, I don't think he had any option, actually. I think he has said from the off that he would have a zero tolerance approach to anti-Semitism within the Labour ranks. But I think it is fair to say that he and people around him do regret the fact that it's Diane Abbott, who, of course, has been for so long such a prominent anti-racism campaigner who has broken through the glass ceiling of British politics by being the first black woman MP and has campaigned consistently throughout um, her time in Parliament against anti-black racism. And, it, you know, there's a feeling that it's just really unfortunate that it was her. But regardless, she had it had to be dealt with. You think in that sense they, they find it a bit difficult? My instant response was that, that they would actually think, well, this this presented... Uh, another opportunity to do what they've been doing for a long, long time, which is distance themselves from the Labour left and from the, the Corbyn period. And it, it's just another opportunity for Keir Starmer to say, look at me, I'm strong and, and to use his words, ruthless, and I'm not having it. I think there are definitely people within the leader's office that, that will have been their, their reaction. But I think for sort of most sort of mainstream Labour people, it will have been uh, a recognition that this had to be challenged and dealt with, but um, but one which is sort of tinged with regret that it was her. It's unfortunate because, of course, um, it's a complex issue and um, and she has she has been a trailblazer in many, many ways when it comes to anti-racism. Even within, broadly speaking, her section of the Labour Party, the left, sort of centred on the campaign group of MPs and their allies, and their allies there's been pretty sharp criticism. John McDonald criticised her. John Landsman, the, the founder of Momentum, very pointedly criticised her. 
Um, what did you think watching the response of the left of the Labour Party to what she said, Gabby? I mean, you're right. There was an instant sort of, you know, almost ostracism. And that in some ways I think is self-defensive. It's a, it's a not wanting to see, you know, the left of the Labour Party once again associated with anti-Semitism. And in some ways it was people on the right who were more able to say, you know, I, mean, I, I have to say, I, I had very complicated feelings about it because while what she said was awful and indefensible and her excuse was baffling, you know, it's a sad end to the career of an interesting politician. And she left herself no way out either. Normally, I mean, we've seen MPs make, you know, sometimes lose the whip for making uh, controversial statements. You know, for instance, you had um, Naz Shah lose, um, being held at a court up for anti-Semitic comments. And she responded by saying, you know, I'll listen and learn. I'll go and visit synagogues. I'll educate myself. I'll, you know, and and found her way back through that. If you accept that what you said was bad and that you're going to kind of go away and think about, you know, there's potentially a path back, but there's no path back now. And I think you do get this sense of an end of an era feeling, you know, with Corbyn outside the party, Diane, you know, she's 69. It seems unlikely that she's going to, you know, kind of stage a dramatic comeback at some point in the future. There is that whole kind of um, cohort of left-wing Labour politicians who you, you can see just sort of, you know, wandering off into the wilderness. It does seem odd, doesn't it, that this group of people and this sort of view of the Labour Party in the wider world, which was running the show very, very recently, has come to this point, really, and has kind of shriveled away. And I don't only mean that in terms of the likelihood of um, neither Jeremy Corbyn nor Diane Abbott potentially standing as Labour candidates in the next election. I also mean that that, that, that that body of hundreds of thousands of activists. You know, there was a sense that whatever one thought of Corbynism when it arrived, it was a big thing and it would endure in some way. And here we are. And it's, there are times when I think it's just not there, you know. What happened to it? Thousands of Labour Party members have left the party since Keir Starmer took over. And and as you say, the, the socialist campaign group of MPs look like a sort of a, you know, a niche interest group really on the back benches. They're very much not not the mainstream on the on the Labour benches. But I don't think that there are many people in Lotto that would be too concerned about that. They felt that their party had been taken over by the left and that they wanted to get it back. And, um, you know, there are there are people within the, the leaders, the, within Keir Starmer's team, that are absolutely ruthless in terms of rooting out what they see as the left. And we've seen that with some of the selection battles, um, you know, the, um, the sort of the intervention from the centre and some of those and a real sort of shift in the balance of power that actually has been going on for some time. But this feels kind of like the, the final the final bits of the puzzle, the end days of it. All. Although let's not speak too soon, because as we all know, if uh, Keir Starmer manages to win the next election with a small majority, the campaign group, which even now I think I'm right in saying represents a sixth of Labour MPs, sitting Labour MPs, you know, it could actually um, suddenly have quite a bit of influence and clout and we will have to see. Anyway, let's talk about the local elections that are happening next Thursday. Thursday. Um, we know, don't we, that there may only be a year to the next general election. And, you know, one wonders, I've written about this recently, we've talked about it a lot, about this kind of shape the Labour Party is in, given how soon that election might arrive. It still seems to me that Keir Starmer doesn't have a strong enough story around him and, and what he wants and what he would do with power, which occasionally seems to me to be quite mind-boggling. Um, anyway, here he is, with or without um, a convincing story, faced with this big electoral test. And the um, spread of these elections is pretty huge, you know, and there are very, very significant places in the battle between the Tory and Labour Party where people are going to be voting. 
Bolton, Darlington, Derby, they're all quite red wally places. Hartlepool, Milton Keynes, always marginal. Peterborough, always marginal. Plymouth, always marginal. Swindon, and on and on they go. So this is going to be interesting, isn't it? Notwithstanding uh, the fact that we know that significantly less people vote in local elections than national elections and all that, um, we are going to be interested in what happens here. Yeah, well, we are, um, because this is potentially the last big electoral test before the general election, which might be next spring. We might have another set of locals before then, but we don't actually know yet uh, beyond that the general election will be next year. And so Labour are very much using it as a sort of a, a test bed for some of their policies and some of their campaigning techniques. We saw that with a very sort of um, pugnacious adverts, um, if you want to describe them that way. That, uh, oh, is this the um, that one? You know, taking, the fight, taking the fight to the That's Tories. That's very, gen- so that's very generous. Some would say diplomatic of you, Pippa, <laughs> to characterise it as pugnacious. <laughs> Defamatory and potentially libelous might be another way, diplomat. but anyway, <laughs> I am the ultimate. I'm the ultimate diplomat. Anyway, um, the but they're trying out some campaigning techniques. They're trying out some policies, and they see this very much as a sort of a dress rehearsal for how the campaigning system works ahead of the next election. There's various things you can take from the locals. It, it's sort of like a, a step on the way to the general election. I think you know you mentioned John, and I, I share this view that still a lot of people look sound like they're going to vote. Um, they're not going to vote Conservative rather than that they are going to vote Labour. And I think Labour knows that they've got a lot of work to do to give people a positive case for voting for them and they're not there yet. There is a huge, huge issue at the heart of these local elections because they are the first set of elections that is going to happen um, in the midst of new rules about uh, voter ID. Um, And I think I'm right in saying that on the same day this podcast was recorded, the final figures have come in for how many people applied for new voter ID, which if they haven't got the approved list of ID, which is very, very complicated and full of all sorts of contradictions, they are going to need that to vote. Now, as far as we understand it, about 63,000 met the deadline to apply for the new voter ID, which is just 3% of the 2 million people who, it is estimated, lack the right ID to vote under the government's new rules. We know that there is an imbalance as regards the kind of ID that's required that will be carried by young people as against old people, and it seems that it favours the old rather than the young, and on and on it goes. This is a huge story, Gabby, isn't it? We, am I, sitting here next Friday, this might, have, this might really blow. I think it's going to be quite a um, stressful day in polling stations for a lot of officials because you're going to have lots of people coming up, uh, being turned away, not realising that they didn't that they needed ID, not realising that their ID isn't in date, not realising that it's the right ID. There's going to be quite a sort of uh, potentially argumentative day, I think. But beyond that, there's a number of people who you'll never know might have voted if they hadn't been put off by thinking that they couldn't. I mean, I wrote about this a week ago because I um, only realised at the last minute that I was in that, um, I was potentially caught myself. My ID is in my maiden name and I'm registered to vote in my married name and that wouldn't have worked. There'll be an awful lot of people who haven't noticed. I think a quarter of people in one survey said that that they were not aware that there was this change coming in. Now, this is obviously part of the reason for introducing it now was in hopes that people would get used to the new system before a general election. And turnout is normally low in local elections anyway, so it'll be very hard to tell how much this has deterred people. And hopefully some people will get a wake-up call in time for the next general elections but you know it's worrying you shouldn't be at the moment when at a point when everybody's worried about turnout and worried about participation in democracy and worried about engagement the last thing we should be doing is making it harder for people to vote 
But also, as I say, next Friday, there may be lots and lots of stories about people turning up in good faith with, let's say, what they thought was the right idea at a polling station and being turned away and therefore not voting. And if you combine that with the fact that the margin of victory or defeat in lots of contests is going to be very, very small, this could be a huge story. Is that your sense of it, Pepper? Are you sort of sitting here waiting for this potentially to turn it into something pretty big? Well, it's definitely one we've got our eyes on and we've been doing, we've actually been covering it a lot in the run up and keeping a very close eye on those numbers. And, you know, I mean, the government obviously says it's all about um, voter fraud, which I think we all know is is actually minimal, you know, tiny, really, in, in this country. And so it's hard to escape sort of the, the fears that it is about gerrymandering. It is something more than it is something more than that. And potentially going to see thousands and thousands of people who might want to vote unable to do so. Equally, we might not even know about it because there's going to be people outside, some of these officials outside polling stations, checking whether people have IDs. So they wouldn't even be they wouldn't even be registered. It could be it could potentially be a you know a huge a huge political scandal. Um, in terms of the results decided by the people who are lucky enough to be able to vote, just briefly, I don't know what your sense is of what's likely to happen. The Conservative Party has been going out of its way to underplay these elections. Their campaign launch was very muted. The Conservative Spring Conference, they didn't let the media in, which is very much in keeping with that. Um, that suggested that their expectation is they'll do very badly. I still have this sort of gut feeling that the Labour Party isn't going to do quite as well as it ought to at this stage of the cycle. So in that sense, conceivably, it could be sort of not great for the Labour Party, but on the face of it, pretty bad for the Tories is that I mean that's almost self-evident isn't it that's what's going to happen I mean it's so bad for them last time that um, any sort of recovery from that ends up looking better than it actually is they could actually still deliver a pretty poor set of results but it wouldn't be as bad as um, as uh, 2019. Gabby just in conclusion there are no contests in London I happen to live in Somerset we've got we've got a new unitary council and no elections but you have got the vote I just want to check that it's okay you have your ID and it's going to be all right. I have I'm voting in Oxfordshire where there's one thing that I will be interesting to see um, is how far the sort of development of tactical voting tactical anti-Tory voting has moved because there's a very organised operation it seems to me now especially in a lot of uh, Tory shires where Labour the Lib Dems and the Greens are not standing councillors against each other you know they're are very actively the can- the canvassers will open on the doorstep with you might vote x but let me tell you they're not standing here and it's me and we're swapping you know kind of they are very much pitching that it will be interesting to see what effect it has are you in the blue wall i am oh right that's good i'm even more pleased you're here anyway on that note we will end thank you so much uh, for joining us today pippa and gabby thanks Thank for having us Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, make sure you subscribe to Politics Weekly UK wherever you get your podcasts and even better, leave us a review. Before you go, please don't forget to subscribe to The Guardian's podcast series, Cotton Capital, which is looking at The Guardian's links to transatlantic slavery. New episodes are released every Monday. Episode four travels to Brazil to find out more about The Guardian's connection there. Search for Cotton Capital wherever you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. This episode was produced by Frankie Toby. The music is by Axel Kakutier and the executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. This is The Guardian. 